Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here we're trying to make keeping up with the literature as easy as possible, and so we're willing to spoon-feed it to you. Now then, let's take a quick look at everything that we're going to cover from this past week. First off, we have a glance into the future of emergency medicine in the year 2030. After that, trending end tidal CO2 levels and their predictive value for survival in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Then NSAIDs and fractures, no signs of non-union here. After that, for your sedation needs, we offer a choice of droperidol or olanzapine. And then from the final article, if you're not happy with those choices, we also offer ketamine or a combo of midazolam and haloperidol. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the uplifting Erin Hanna, Gabby Leonard, Graham Van Shake, Rebecca White, and Sam Parnell. Now then, the first article was titled, The Emergency Medicine Physician Workforce, Projections for 2030 Out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. When emergency medicine broke through onto the scene and became its own specialty, there was suddenly a shortage of this kind of doctor where none had formerly existed before. And then to meet this new fabricated need, there's a boom of emergency medicine doctors being trained, as well as advanced practice providers alongside them. Now, it's actually been a fairly healthy number of years since that time, and now we're a pretty good and established specialty. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't still look towards the future, and that's exactly what ASEP did, as they're trying to predict if we'd either have a shortage or a surplus of emergency physicians by the year 2030. This study took 2018 as their base year, that is, assuming that in 2018 all things were well calibrated and the supply of emergency medicine doctors equaled the demand. After crunching some numbers, the specifics of which I do not fully comprehend because I'm not like an economist, they determined that by 2030, the most likely case would be that there would be a 2% annual growth in residents graduating, a 3% annual attrition rate for practicing doctors, and an increase to 20% of patients being seen by APPs compared to 15% in 2018. And then finally, there would also be overall an 11.2% increase in patient visits. After all of these assumptions, they estimated a surplus of 7,800 emergency medicine doctors in the year 2030. Now, this is all just projections for the future, and historically, humans are really bad at fortune-telling. And on top of it, this is a really complicated metric to calculate, and they couldn't have included all of the variables. If they're wrong about a few of the numbers that they calculated, then there could just as easily be a deficit. It's probably best to regularly check in on these numbers... And the article suggests that we should be focusing on maintaining our workforce rather than growing it. In a spoonful, if things keep going the way we think they'll be going or the way that they have been going, then the United States can expect a surplus of emergency medicine doctors in the year 2030. Then we have the second article titled The Association Between End Tidal CO2 and the Return of Spontaneous Circulation in Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest with Pulseless Electrical Activity out of the Journal of Resuscitation. Out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with PEA as the rhythm is not a good prognostic sign. It also makes it a bit more confusing to get a good measure of exactly what's going on with the heart, especially for our EMS colleagues who don't necessarily have a nice resuscitation bay environment like we might at the hospital. What they do have to measure cardiac activity and resuscitation efforts, though, is the EKG and the end tidal CO2. Just how much information are we getting from the end tidal CO2 in these cases? These authors studied the association between end-tidal CO2 and ROSC in patients with non-traumatic out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and PEA. 
More specifically, the authors wanted to know the association between the change in end tidal CO2 one minute after placement of the advanced airway compared to one minute prior to ROSC or termination of resuscitation. We'll call that the delta end tidal CO2 or just delta so that I can stop saying end tidal CO2. So data was collected from 208 patients, 32 of which achieved ROSC. A higher delta was positively associated with the achievement of ROSC for an odds ratio of 1.74 per 10 millimeters of mercury increase in the delta value. On top of that, a delta greater than 20 millimeters of mercury was 95% specific for future ROSC. This data is consistent with other studies, which have shown similar results, showing that end-tidal CO2 levels greater than 20 at the time of intubation or 20 minutes after ACLS was started is the best predictor for a return of spontaneous circulation. Meanwhile, if the end-tidal CO2 is less than 10, then there's actually a 100% sensitivity and specificity for non-survival. Overall, this was a nice study. It's good to solidify these points. These are important things to know about. But while we certainly work very hard on trying to achieve ROSC, it's not the outcome we actually care about. What we want to see is survival with good neurological outcomes, and I would have liked to see that included in this study. In a spoonful, in patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and PEA, a rise in the end-tidal CO2 was associated with higher chances of achieving ROSC. Increases over 20 millimeters of mercury since intubation is a good sign to continue CPR. Then we have the third article titled, Do Non-Steroidal Anti-Inflammatory or COX-2 Inhibitor Drugs Increase the Non-Union or Delayed Union Rates After Fracture Surgery? A Propensity Score Match Study out of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Now, decreasing opioid prescription is all the rage these days. If your patient can do without opiates, then they're probably going to have to. And a first-line replacement for opiates is often NSAIDs or COX-2 inhibitors. These do a great job for a lot of things and avoid many of the downsides of opiates. If you're looking for pain control in the context of a fracture though, there's been some mixed opinions on how safe these drugs are with relation to fracture healing. The evidence has been kind of back and forth, and we've actually covered some of it in the past already. These authors hope to add their two cents with a retrospective registry-based case series of about 8,700 patients with upper or lower extremity fractures who were treated surgically over a 20-year period ending in 2018. They excluded those who already had non-union or pathological fractures and used demographic data for propensity matching. The data was divided into two groups, NSAID or COX-2 users and non-users of these drugs. The primary outcome was a diagnosis of non-union or delayed union at 6 to 48 months, and the secondary outcome was a need for reoperation for these diagnoses. Only 208 patients had delayed or non-union in this cohort, and it was mostly non-union, and 30% of these patients required a second operation. In this group, NSAID users had a lower chance of non-union compared with matched non-users. The hazard ratio here was 0.69 there was significantly higher rates of dysfunctional fracture healing, though, if NSAID duration was longer than three weeks. COX-2 inhibitors had no such associations. This is kind of odd. It looks like NSAIDs would decrease the rates of non or delayed union if it was taken for less than three weeks. But if you take it for more than three weeks, then it increases the rates of non-union. Why would it flip effects after three weeks? A more likely explanation would probably 
A more likely explanation would probably be something like patients with more pain and thus more analgesic requirements are at a higher risk of non-union. Another limitation to this study was we have no idea how many of these patients actually took their meds or how much of their meds or if they also took over-the-counter NSAIDs that most people stock at home. It seems like there's still work to be done on this issue, but this was another negative trial for all that's worth. In a spoonful, this study supported the use of NSAIDs or COX-2 inhibitors for treating pain in patients with long bone fractures without increasing the rates of delayed or non-union, unless you took them for more than three weeks. Then the fourth article titled A Prospective Study of Intramuscular Droperidol or Olanzapine for Acute Agitation in the Emergency Department, a Natural Experiment Owing to Drug Shortages, out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Agitated patients can be scary, they cause a lot of injuries to emergency department staff. It can be quite dangerous. The first step is of course to try to talk them down, you know, offer them something to eat, do whatever you have to do. But when that fails, as it sometimes does, then chemical sedation becomes a very immediate option that you can use. There's not really any consensus on what the right thing to give patients is, and IV access is often not going to be available. So let's help you pick. This was a single-center prospective observational study comparing IM droperidol to IM olanzapine to treat acute agitation. The choice of medication and the dose was decided by the physician at the time. The median dose of droperidol was 5 mg, and for olanzapine it was 10 mg. The primary outcome was the time to sedation as measured by an altered mental status scale score of 0 or less. The time to sedation was actually very similar between the two groups. 16 minutes for droperidol and 17.5 minutes for olanzapine. And olanzapine actually required redosing more often than droperidol. But droperidol has more extrapyramidal symptoms. The olanzapine group also spent an hour longer in the emergency department, but otherwise the two treatments were very similar. The study was limited by not being randomized or blinded, although drug shortages limiting the treatment options during the study period might have decreased the chances of selection bias. Still, I'd say either option is quite viable. In a spoonful, I am droperidol and I am olanzapine both controlled agitation in nearly the same amount of time. Droperidol has shorter lengths of stay in the emergency department and less redosing, but it has a bit more EPS than olanzapine at least. And then finally we have the last article which is titled Rapid Agitation Control with Ketamine in the Emergency Department, a Blinded Randomized Control Trial out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Another article on agitation, this time taking into account that often more than one medication can be given at the same time. Here we try out a classic combination of midazolam and haloperidol against the new favorite, which is ketamine. Ketamine has previously been praised for its quick onset and relative safety. Let's see how it does against the old hats in the business. This time we do have a blinded randomized control trial out of a single center in Vancouver, Canada from almost a two-year period ending in March 2020. Oh gee, I wonder why it would end in March 2020. COVID, um, which unfortunately made them fall short of their target sample size. That being said, they had 80 patients who were treated in this time for severe agitation and were included in this study. Patients were randomized to receive either ketamine at 5 mg per kg IM or midazolam and haloperidol at 5 mg each IM. They compared the onset time, level of sedation, and looked for adverse events in each group. 
Ketamine was much faster, 5.8 minutes, compared to 14.6 minutes for midazolam haloperidol. Ketamine patients were also more likely to be appropriately sedated at every time point that they measured. Rescue medication was quite similar between the two groups, 13% for ketamine and 15% for midaz and haloperidol. Where ketamine fell down, unfortunately, was in that it had more adverse events. 12.5% during that time versus just 5% for midazinhaloperidol. These events were things like apnea, hypoxia, laryngospasm, and dystonia. Thankfully, no patients required intubation or ICU admission, though. So at least there's that. Now, while this sounds significant, the difference in adverse events didn't actually reach statistical significance, and the authors didn't think that they had an adequate sample size to even comment on safety. In a spoonful, ketamine, as compared with midazolam and haloperidol as a cocktail, was faster and better at controlling agitation, though there was concern for more adverse events with ketamine. Alright guys, that's our 5 for the week, that's all we've got, let's do a quick wrap up and review. First off, we saw that if it's not a robot taking your job in 10 years, it might just be another doctor. The current estimates say that there could be a surplus of almost 8,000 emergency medicine doctors 10 years from now. Next, before losing hope in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with PEA, check their end tidal CO2 and compare it to the first measurement. An increase of more than 20 milligrams of mercury is a really good sign that they'll achieve ROSC. Then from the third article is a bit messy in terms of data quality, but this retrospective study supported the use of NSAIDs and COX-2 inhibitors after long bone fractures. They were not causing delayed or non-union in this study. At least if you took them for less than three weeks, at which point they might. Then from the fourth article, there is no clear winner between droperidol and olanzapine for treating agitation, but droperidol had shorter emergency department stay times and less redosing. And finally, from the last article, if neither of those options float your boat, or you just want something that works really quick, then ketamine outperformed midazolam plus haloperidol in a blinded RCT, though the authors didn't feel confident commenting on safety. And that's it. That's all we had to cover from this week, which means that you've earned them and we offer them. We have CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that, as well as some pricing, are available at our website at journalvita.org. Links to all the articles that we summarize can also be found at that very same place. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get these daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.